and uh, we'd been through that intersection lots, mm -hmm. you know, dozens and dozens of times. Uh, mostly with that incident, we had run checkpoints there. We knew that intersection like the back of our hand and uh, went through and I heard this sort of whoosh, boom. And then uh, started to get the automatic weapons fire uh, um, so from, you know, most I think light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. And that, that's when it kind of like dawned us, oh, they're like, they're, they're seriously like trying to kill us. Hey, welcome back to The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and The Spear is our platform to explore the combat experience. In this episode, MWI's Major Jake Moraldi talks to Brian Humphreys. Brian is a former Marine Corps officer. This is actually our second episode in a row featuring a Marine guest, and if you missed the last one, please do go and check it out. But in this episode, you'll hear stories from two deployments, one to Iraq and one to Afghanistan. Brian's first deployment to Iraq's Anbar province came during a turbulent time in the country, and the story he shares of being ambushed by insurgents is pretty indicative of the tough deployments the Marine Corps was facing around 2004 and 2005. In his second deployment, this time to Afghanistan, Brian and his Marines were tasked with training their Afghan counterparts. His experience is something many veterans of our post-9-11 wars can relate to. Long periods of, well, pretty tedious work punctuated by intense, violent, and sometimes chaotic combat. Before we hear Brian's stories, just a couple quick notes. First, thank you for listening to The Spear. The response we received since we launched it has really been incredible. We want to continue to reach even more new listeners, and you can help. If you're enjoying the podcast, we would love it if you could take just a few seconds and give it a rating or leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And second, as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. All right, here's Jake Moraldi and Brian Humphreys. All right, so first and foremost, if you can give me a quick rundown on who you are and sort of what your experience is. Okay, name's Brian Humphreys. I'm currently working as an analyst in the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, my military background is a former captain in the Marine Corps. I'm a 0302, which uh, if those of you familiar with the Marine Corps nomenclature, that's infantry officer. Um, I uh, came to the Marines comparatively late in life for people who go into the military. Uh, I was 28 years old at the time I enlisted uh, and before that had a career in overseas journalism and uh, had decided I wanted to be somebody who did stuff, not somebody who just wrote about people doing stuff. So uh, the Marine Corps beckoned. Um, I went to boot camp in uh, October of 2000 and um, recall very clearly that I missed entirely the election of that year, which turned out to be very fateful um, and only remember the, the drill instructor telling us that the election was too close call, otherwise I have no recollection of hanging chads or anything <laughs> like that. Um, I did a couple years uh, enlisted mostly uh, with the Reserve Artillery Unit and also uh, as a recruiter aide uh, in California and uh, then went to the Officer Candidate School in uh, twice but uh, the second successful time in 2002 uh, was commissioned at the end of that year. Uh, then continued through the Marine Corps pipeline in 2003 through the basic school which is six month. Uh, 
course of military science, basic combat skills, that kind of thing to train the newly commissioned lieutenants. And uh, then went to the infantry officer course uh, uh, in October of that year. And uh, then uh, was assigned to uh, 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines, 29 Palms, California. Um, and at that time, of course, we'd already been to Iraq. Uh, the Marines uh, had been to Iraq and had left Iraq mission uh, with a sense that we, we were done there. We were sort of the nation's strike force. We had uh, defeated the enemy. We were through. Um, as I mentioned, our current defense secretary at the time was a commander of the 1st Marine Division. Uh, advocated very forcefully for the Marines uh, to return to Iraq, which we did. And uh, my platoon, uh, my battalion was the first Marine battalion back into Iraq mm -hmm. in 2004. Um, and uh, we were stationed, not really stationed, but we were assigned to an AO uh, just west of Ramadi on the Euphrates River, small town named Heat, um, H-I-T. Uh, which again, some of your listeners will probably be familiar with, but it was mostly uh, an area where uh, the insurgents went to plan, to retrofit, to plan other sort of more visible operations in uh, the capital. Uh, they had good access to the approaches to Baghdad, and our assignment was to, our mission was to disrupt their operations, destroy them when possible. Uh, it proved to be, on the whole, a very uh, elusive enemy. Uh, they rarely engaged us directly. Uh, took a fair amount of mortar fire, fair amount of IEDs, uh, that type of thing. Um, and uh, had a couple of direct engagements with them. And then, um, uh, sort of during that time, we were uh, actually uh, called to. Uh, move to Fallujah and uh, as Operation Ripper Sweep uh, in, in April of 2004 uh, when after the contractors were killed in Fallujah and the, the fight for the city took place. Um, my uh, battalion uh, was uh, directed to secure the approaches to Fallujah and then we were um, going to cross the river into the city itself and um, sort of on the eve of that happening, actually General Mattis again uh, negotiated a ceasefire with insurgents and we were uh, directed to return to heat so that uh, what was to have been a sort of very direct confrontation with the enemy never actually indeed took place. Um, so if you ever hear anybody talking about Ripper Sweep and how bad they were then, just remember that, I guess. <laughs> 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 but, um, but anyway, we... Uh, uh, to our battalion commander's consternation, we returned to heat without having fired a, a shot in Fallujah. Um, we've completed the rest of our deployment, uh, mostly securing our own supply lines, uh, continuing sort of this low-grade warfare of IEDs, mortars, uh, that, that type of thing. Uh, unfortunately, continued to lose Marines, so the uh, frustration of a uh, very elusive enemy that uh, mostly avoided direct combat but uh, did find ways to inflict casualties uh, continued really to the end of our deployment and uh, then we left some handed the baton to somebody else mm -hmm. yeah so a couple couple things I want to hit on um, one kind of talking about river sweep even though you didn't end up 
firing a shot, there was obviously sort of a lot of preparation involved and something mm -hmm. like that. And I'm mm -hmm. curious kind of what that what that was like for, for you guys preparing for what was a brigade-level mission, I'm guessing? Regimental. A regimental-level mission? Yeah, well, brigade, yeah. Right, so yeah, so, uh, yeah. so a large, a, a fairly large-scale sort of tactical mission mm -hmm. into um, Fallujah. What, what was that preparation like for you guys? Uh, it went very uh, suddenly from that we have Certainly, we were not in a safe environment in heat, and uh, we had been uh, in combat, including a direct engagement, an urban ambush with some insurgents uh, prior to that time. So, you know, we were cognizant of the fact we were, we were not, you know, certainly in a rear area by any means, but, um, but we also felt we had a good handle on what the scale of the threat was. It was um, low-intensity counterinsurgency warfare. Um, and it sort of almost overnight went to uh, with a random event that some contractors, you know, fell into the hands of insurgents in Fallujah, something you couldn't foresee, and suddenly totally different. We're talking about, you know, large unit maneuver warfare, massing troops, uh, facing a dug-in enemy, uh, sort of doing uh, an Iraqi version of Stalingrad, basically. Um, and so I think that was... Uh, something that woke a number of us up and uh, sort of something you, uh, you know, for any of your leaders out there, that's something to be prepared for. That is just, you, you don't know the hour of the day when uh, the balloon goes up like that. And I remember um, our company commander briefing us in some camp somewhere in Fallujah or outside Fallujah someplace. And uh, it's been many years now, so I can't remember exactly, but, you know, we had our maps out and uh, start describing our movement. And I kept kind of kept thinking that you were done and like, okay, and that's our mission. So like, and then we go, and at each sort of step of this, there were, um, you know, anticipated, you know, thousands of enemy troops in one sort or another, basically Mahdi army, um, some of the various Sunni militias of one sort or another. Um, and um, I remember talking to a friend that I had been through the entire training pipeline with later who was in a sister company. And I was sort of looking back and he was like, and we're talking about how he felt about it. He was like, oh yeah, I thought we were going to die. And I was like, yeah, me too. <laughs> I mean, just like, how are we ever going <laughs> to, uh, how are we ever going to get through this? Um, well, in the nature of yeah. Fallujah, right, yeah. is, you know, I'm, I've only ever been to Afghanistan on my deployment, so, yeah. you know, a sizable urban area for me is like Asadabad, which has mm -hmm. 10,000 people in it and like four buildings that are over two stories tall. Yeah. Can you kind of describe what just what the, the landscape of Fallujah looks like for people that maybe aren't sort of acclimated to what, what Fallujah is? It's a Euphrates River town uh, and a large, medium-sized city. I actually never entered the city because I stayed on the other side of the river. We, but you could see the insurgency there in a different way than you could in heat. So when we started moving towards Fallujah, that was the first time that, like, we routinely started to unearth like, like daisy-chained IEDs, just much more sophisticated weapons than we had seen. Much more active insurgency. Any of the houses we searched, you know, coverable multiple arms caches, that kind of thing. So it was a different level of intensity, even approaching Fallujah. And then there was a actually a special military city that Saddam Hussein had built for the Republican Guard 
and sort of that society is sort of very Soviet in a way, but some of the senior military officers would get better apartments, that kind of thing. And uh, it was built like a giant series of pillboxes, even though they're civilian. And we were we were going to take that city, so that that was going to be a really big fight. And we had this is the first time I ever had tanks attached to anything I had in the Marines. Actually, this is a sort of interesting thing about the Marine Corps at that time, but when I was had just been in the infantry officer course, only several months previously, we had gone out to 29 Palms and met with uh, the commander of a tank platoon, and those four tanks were, at that time, the only four tanks in the Marine Corps that were capable of, <laughs> that were fully combat ready. Everything else was being uh, retrofitted in one way or another, so evidently we had gotten a few more tanks fixed up by the time I was in Fallujah. And uh, so we got this giant armored fist sort of ready to go. Uh, we had a couple sections of F-15s overhead. And uh, we got to the edge of the city and we had had recon eyes on that, you know, active insurgent activity there, et cetera. And we got there and like the leader of the city came out, basically declared it open city, come on in. We searched every nook and cranny of that city, didn't find anybody. Uh, had actually one of the more friendly receptions we had anywhere in Iraq. I guess it helps having some tanks with you or whatever. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, again, it was uh, some ways um, anticlimactic. On the other hand, you had to be prepared for it could come out exactly what we had expected for it was very heavy combat engagement and that just didn't materialize there you talked about some of the some of the extra stuff some of the enablers that were attached to you for for this mission even though it yeah. didn't kind of play out how you how you thought what was how did you go about kind of integrating or rehearsing or you know <laughs> taking stuff that you don't have on a day-to-day -day basis and and making it part of a coherent plan if, if that did indeed happen. Uh, so, you know, we do our our soldiers and Marines a little bit of disservice, you know, sending these uh, these schools and, you know, Fort Benning or Quantico or wherever else and, you know, you have these beautiful maps and briefings and you learn your five paragraph order that you can recite backwards and uh, this annex, that annex. and we were handed like a Xerox piece of paper that you could barely look at of this Republican guard town. I forget, I think it was Amaria was the town. And there's just like these little kind of little, it's like looking at old newspaper photograph or something, it's just you could barely make out any of the buildings. There's some, I don't think we had Google Earth back then, but sort of something that, Falcon yeah, that's Falcon View or something like that. And you know, they suspected that a hospital in the center of town was treating casualties from Fallujah, mm -hmm. and we were supposed to go there. And if they fired on us in accordance with the Geneva Convention, then it would lose its uh, protections, and we were to enter the hospital and, and uh, detain the or kill the, the insurgents. And um, but you know, you could not literally you could not figure out where anything was on this thing. It was handed to me like 15 minutes before we got in. I met the tank guy like 10 minutes before we went in. It seemed like a good guy. I hadn't seen the tank <laughs> since the last time we went to 29 Palms and you know saw those four tanks that the Marine Corps had at the time. And it's like, hey, how are you? I'm Lieutenant Humphreys. I'm Lieutenant whatever his name was. Yeah, there's a phone in the back. Just you know, call me if you need anything. You know, pick up that little phone in the, um, and uh, asked around through my, I had 
two squad leaders. We only had two squads. Both of them were corporals. Asked them if any of them knew anything about tanks. They kind of assured me that they did. I don't know what that actually meant. Unfortunately, didn't need to find out. Uh, that's not a dig on their competence or anything, but we, yes, we did not have any there, extensive there was, rehearsals. There was no extensive combined arms rehearsal Rehearsals of all at, the... Uh, at all. Um, I had, in the basic school, you know, I think we had some F-18s that we controlled and dropped those blue bombs on the, the range that don't explode and whatever, so... Um, we did have a Marine Corps uh, FAC with us, Forward Air Controller, which is, um, you guys have a different acronym for it, but... Uh, so we had forward air controller with us who was well qualified and um, and I could probably pull something together in a pinch if I had to, but mm -hmm. that was that was the level of it. So um, it was fortuitous that we didn't get in anything too serious there. I don't think we were well rehearsed or well. Um, I'd say, you know, comparatively we're well trained, but I don't think we were well trained for that mission. Uh, it was just we had to do it right then and have whatever training you have, which again, if you're at West Point or somewhere else and there's that class on, this is, you know, you're down and dirty forward air control, that might be the last class you ever get before you're actually, <laughs> here's the microphone and by the way, you're being shot at and go to it, yeah. <laughs> you know, so. Uh, so you didn't get into a, a big fight in Fallujah, but you'd said previously you guys had been involved in, uh, in sort of an urban ambush, is, is what you call it. And I'm kind of curious how, how that played out, uh, you know, especially because we, you know, at the Modern War Institute, in, in particular, we spend, one of our guys spends a lot of time kind of writing about urban operations and talking about how tactical operations are, are sort of moving sort of more urban, not less urban in the future, mm -hmm. um, and some of the unique challenges of fighting in an urban battle space. And, and so I'm curious what your experience was in kind of that near urban ambush uh, kind of context. Yeah, so uh, this was actually, I think it was after, sometime after the Fallujah crisis had already started, and there was a massive movement throughout Western Iraq of uh, civilian traffic to Fallujah. Um, civilian is maybe in quotations marked, I mean, it's basically their logistics train uh, for the <laughs> insurgency, but uh, they were at least not uniformed uh, personnel, but you had a lot of 18-wheeler sort of trucks, that kind of thing, moving along the MSR uh, to Fallujah. So we were told again very quickly, like, go shove, and, you know, we were given a particular intersection or whatever, several miles, um, I can't remember what direction, but along the MSR to, you know, take control of that and establish a checkpoint and um, what have you. And uh, I remember we had just, this is the state we were in, we, we didn't have magazines or we didn't have drums for our saws when we went to Iraq. We just had magazines, which most of y'all will be familiar with this, not really the optimal mode of employment for a saw. Um, they're finicky enough even when you have the, the drum. Uh, we also didn't have the 40 millimeter grenades for mm -hmm. our, um, except for Illum grenades, we, but we didn't have the uh, high explosive uh, 40 millimeter for our uh, 203s. Um, and we had just gotten a crate of those in that day. Um, and I remember we loaded it on the back of our seven ton and the battalion commander was just breathing down our neck to like get out 
like now don't even like don't distribute the ammo nothing 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 like I'm sure he was being leaned on by I don't know might have been General Mattis I don't know but in any case we were like don't don't bother with the movement plan don't it's like why aren't you there already lieutenant kind of thing and uh, so we bombed out of there with those 40 millimeter grenades crated up in the back of seven tons um, took a left turn on the MSR uh, went a couple clicks towards uh, we were just outside heat uh, where our fire base was our firm base was and we got to the first traffic circle in heat which is sort of the the main sort of thoroughfare and you had one one MSR that crossed the Euphrates and then one that continued I guess if you followed it far enough towards Fallujah and Baghdad and uh, we'd been through that intersection lots mm -hmm. you know dozens and dozens of times uh, mostly without incident, we had run checkpoints there. We knew that intersection like the back of our hand and uh, went through. And I heard this sort of whoosh, boom. And first of all, it was kind of like a little bit like, hey, like guys, we, we have to like, we don't have time for this right now. Like our battalion commander is like leaning on us to get mm -hmm. <laughs> down to this checkpoint, you know, several clicks farther south. Um, and then uh, started to get the automatic weapons fire. Uh, um, so from, you know, most, I think, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. And that that's when it kind of, like, dawned on us, oh, they're, like, they're, they're seriously, like, trying to kill us. Like, it's not, the, like, interfering with my day that I have to, you know, s stop here and guys, don't you understand that I'm a little busy right now and don't mm -hmm. have time for this. And, uh, yeah, the bullets started uh, flying. We, um, I had my driver, you know, the thing you don't want to do is stop in the middle of an ambush zone, so I had him sort of pushed down a bit farther through, uh, and it was a long ambush, so we were still taking fire from even, we were several hundred meters down, and uh, we stopped, dismounted, um, the Marines started to return fire, I grabbed the radio and, um, you know, let it be known to our fire base that, yeah, we were in contact, and uh, we had a react force I requested the react force and um, and so we had them they were actually up on a different checkpoint so we broke them off that and they came down and I had them I found it was very um, like thinking about simple things like we could draw on a whiteboard and whatever any of us here even a lot of students you know who've done a little bit of tactics you know what a good maneuver would be and the mm -hmm. sort of one thing in sort of safety of the classroom it becomes when the adrenaline's running you realize the first time in your life uh, somebody's I had been a couple IED explosions that kind of thing but somebody's like directly trying to get you in their sights and take you out um, and get that organized so that other platoon would come down and they would uh, go on the other MSR that intersection in the traffic circle and so we would have one platoon on sort of one side of the ambush zone at the top of the ambush zone then another my platoon in sort of the long access and uh, sort of hem them in and then sort of work our way out of the ambush um, and uh, so the Marines reacted well they um, it, you know they, there was sort of that moment of oh they're really shooting us and then sort of people kind of came to executed their dismount drill um, very quickly shot 
a couple of insurgents. Uh, we continued to engage them. Um, I called for, uh, we had a section of Cobras on strip alert up at Al-Assad. Um, I remember my, uh, my EXO, our company EXO, um, we kind of different personalities, but I was trying to convey to him that we were under pretty serious fire mm -hmm. and whatever, and I requested the, the air section, and uh, he was like, you know, be advised that it'll be 45 minutes before they, which is true, and I th that's one actually thing that I noticed about the Army at the time, they could get those Kiowas and stuff on station within a few minutes, mm -hmm. and for us it was like minimum 45 minutes to spin the Cobras up, get them down. Um, so it's, uh, to me, less than optimal, but uh, so you know, be advised it'll be about 45 minutes, or it'll be 45 minutes, or in the sense that, you know, don't bother me. That's like, be advised we might be here longer than 45 minutes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so just came, came back at him. And we were, it was uh, an extensive, uh, firefight, I wound up firing my weapon during a couple of these things. I'm sure, as a lieutenant, that's not necessarily your role as much to be an infantryman, but um, yeah, it's just some crazy things were happening. We had this, um, you know, the bulls were going back and forth. We had these orange and white cabs that you, you know, see in Iraq. It's just sort of like, yeah, it's a little bit of a Twilight Zone, like everybody is talking like this, you know, mm -hmm. kind of this situation. This white, black and white, or orange and white cab just comes meandering through, and I was on the radio or something, my guys direct my attention to it, and see it, and we, like, open fire, and we're pumping bullets into it, and uh, it stops. And this guy gets out with a giant beard and whatever, you know, looked like an insurgent from Central Casting. And... Um, <laughs> And like if we had like turned his car into Swiss cheese, and he was like not, not a scratch on him or just a scratch or whatever. And he kept trying to reach back inside the car, and we kept like yelling at him like, to "Don't do that!" And um, finally, kind of persuaded. I know we could have been, we would have been justified to shooting him straight up, um, but uh, we detained him. Then uh, I had one of my other squads take one of the buildings. They came back out of it, and one of my saw gunners quickly engaged them. Fortunately, his aim was off, but he <laughs> sent a bunch of rounds right at my first squad coming out of the building. Um, so don't do that. Uh, so that that gets me to, to kind yeah. of the next question I was going to ask. Yeah. I mean, how did right? So what? How big are the buildings we're talking about that we're clearing, and and the what is that? What four is that or five like? story buildings, and getting uh, there was a lot of work just to we're along probably a three or four hundred meter front just, and somehow our communications were just the physical radio communications were very very difficult even. You know, as well within the range of our radio. I think we were using the Prick 119 at that time. Um, but just somehow, of course, everything craps out when you need it. And like, I couldn't even, like, I couldn't even talk with our um, backup force, um, our REACT platoon. Uh, I had to sort of go through my first squad leader who was closer to the intersection. We had those little mm -hmm. sort of British special ops, little things that you have the headset or whatever, and I could talk to him, then he'd kind of relay something to them. So there's sort of this, trying to play telephone, trying to figure out what's going on, what building are you talking about, what are you looking at, what am I looking at, who's where. Um, I think uh, some Marine, former Marine in a book, it was um, a lot heavier combat than that actually. 
sort of so talked about being a platoon commander is sort of like trying to figure out about 70% of what's going on and make a decision, and that's about <laughs> it, <laughs> you know. So, um, and uh, we were, we had um, wounded several of them, killed several more. Um, there was one last pocket of resistance um, that, again, we were trying to talk to the helicopters, and it's actually something that people who haven't controlled air before before might not think about. A, it takes them a long time to get there, but B, the world looks just very different from up there, even from a helicopter, than it does. And getting them to look at the right building, and I was playing telephone, so which building it was, where they were. Um, so they finally, our battalion commander sort of pushed back down that he wanted us to go toward checkpoint, um, which again, not to it's a difficult environment to make decisions in, but you know, I submit to you, we had the MSR kind of closed off at that point because mm -hmm. we were in direct contact with the enemy. But, <laughs> but anyway, we were ordered to break contact, which uh, we then did and continued on to our, our checkpoint. But that was, um, so that was, yeah, a, something that sort of woke us up to just how quickly it can go from absolutely nothing going on to, yeah, you're you're in a fight for your life, and, and they're, they were not particularly good shots, I'd say. They uh, shot over our heads, fortunately, um, a lot. In fact, that's sort of the funny thing about this one thing, uh, and then I'll, it's not a major enough battle to, to spend too much time on, but uh, we had been in contact with them probably 90 minutes at least with you know automatic fire almost the entire time, and we looked like later there was not like, we had seven tons which have very high sides on them, we, uh, some Humvees, had Marines out, Nobody, nothing had a scratch on it, like they didn't break a windshield, nick paint, puncture a tire, s scratch a Marine, nothing. They, like, for all those rounds, it didn't. <laughs> we, I guess we were fortunate in the enemy we had that day, so, uh, like, on the site picture and alignment, so that's a good thing. So I'm curious, you, you mentioned um, sort of a realization in your own head that, oh, hey, there's someone who's actually, like, no shit trying to kill me yeah. at this point, like a, a person who is looking at me and trying to kill me. What, in retrospect, kind of, did you think or feel anything in that in that moment when, when that occurred to you, or was it something that you kind of didn't have a chance to think about until later? Um, I would say extreme stress um extreme uh, firmly a initial wave of debilitating fear and then sort of a realization that hey but you know you're leading marines here you don't have time for that you need to take that push that down push it somewhere else whatever and you know you need to start acting and you know the stuff well enough that even if you're not um relaxed uh you know the right things to do and you can get things moving. Um, actually, my best squad leader, anytime we got, we were actually fell under mortar fire again, either later that day or the next day or whatever. And he was always, you know, he'd always have very like kind of panicked voice and whatever on the radio, but he was easily my best squad leader. How he led his men and whatever was, was absolutely correct. So it's okay to have the adrenaline flowing and stuff like that. You just need to then also 
train yourself to function in that environment, you know, and the, uh, the main thing that will address that fear is, you know, the destruction of the enemy and you need to literally keep your head on your shoulders, you know, for that. So that was, um, I guess you don't know that till you uh, come to contact. I would say that um, in contact I had there and later in Afghanistan, sort of once I had sort of that first experience, it got it got easier to get to that place where you could just sort of stay in this pocket and think and and uh, do whatever your job was at the time. Um, but but getting there, you know, don't be too hard on yourself. It's it's a skill you become better at over time with experience. <laughs> yeah. So I want to transition a little yeah. bit to your your Afghan experience that you mentioned. Um, you know, because I think it will like we talked about earlier, kind of dovetail well with, with Colonel Perez's mm-hmm. uh, talk about Afghanistan. So can you give a little bit of background on what sort of your Afghan experience was as a, a Marine advisor, correct? Like an ETT? Yes. Uh, so you got the, so yeah, they called MIT teams, I think, in the Army. Um, ETT, Embedded Training Teams, uh, for those not as familiar with the Marine uh, nomenclature. And uh, we were, um, I forget the exact or battle, but we were actually at first Marine Expeditionary Force, which um, is, you know, obviously much larger. Uh, but uh, they sent uh, support detachments to Afghanistan in the mid aughts. So this was 2005. So probably about five months after I returned from uh, uh, from Iraq, this opportunity came up. Um, I had. Um, I was ready to um, move on to other things outside the particular battalion I was in, and this seemed like a good opportunity. And uh, this also seemed interesting, and also seemed that the Afghan war, in some ways, was more tractable um, than the Iraq war, which in 2004, 2005, for those who've been there, um, it was you know you had to keep the faith, <laughs> it was it was hard. Mm-hmm. So. Um, my, uh, we got to Kabul in um, sometime. I think in May. We we convened everybody in uh, Camp Pendleton. Did a work up there, um, as basically um, the odds and ends of the Marine Corps. People from you know nobody had been like serious trouble, but certain people you know that had room and time, whether they had mm-hmm. a divorce or whether things didn't go that well with their last battalion commander or whatever the story was. Mm-hmm. Good group of Marines overall, but uh, a little bit of the misfit toys coming together to, to do this thing. And we um, went uh, over to Kabul. Uh, and then if you go straight south from Kabul all the way, you get to uh, Paktika province. Um, some of your listeners will be very familiar with that, I'm sure. And uh, my uh, fire base was then the farthest out from uh, Orgoni, which was our headquarters. And it was a little town called Shkin, and we had a border control post, and we had an Afghan rifle company uh, that had sort of fallen into disarray after being created. Uh, the Marine ETT team bef- that was there before us did, I think, a really spectacular job of getting them even 
we, we have this all the time, and anybody who's ever been on these advisor missions probably knows you get there and you think, who are these clowns that like were working with these guys last time, you know? Um, and then after you've been there a few months, you realize like how much the last guys did and how far, you know, your, your unit that you're advising has come. But um, anyway, we, uh, I had a Marine Sergeant, a Navy Corpsman, and a Marine Reservist, and he was also a Sergeant. And that, that was it. It was us, and there was a uh, Special Forces team from 3rd Special Forces Group. Uh, there were some civilian representatives of one sort or another from the United States as well, and mostly uh, the Afghan militia that the Special Forces guys had run up, and then our militia, also known as the Afghan National Army, mm -hmm. that, we <laughs> that the Marine Advisor Team um, was working for, and that actually um, proved to be a very interesting natural experiment because the Special Forces guys, essentially, even though they had, you know, Afghan leaders for their, uh, I think they were called Afghan Special Forces or whatever they were called at the time, um, they essentially still held the reins. It mm -hmm. was a, um, you know, they controlled the organization from top to bottom, who was there, could pick and choose leaders. Um, whereas we were much more connected to Afghan politics and who the officers were was more a function of Afghan politics than it was any kind of military training, competence, any mm -hmm. of things. Um, so it was a very interesting challenge from that perspective. Yeah, so in, in your role as an ETT, I remember you know the ETTs that were there on my first Afghan deployment in mm -hmm. 09, mm -hmm. right? They very much, uh, you know, in my, in my limited scope, kind of set the model for a lot of what eventually happened in Afghanistan with some of the advisory teams, mm -hmm. the SFABs and SFATs and all the different, mm -hmm. uh, you know, advisory acronyms, where, you know, it was the Afghan company or Afghan platoon and a couple of Marines that went out. Was that sort of your, your experience yeah. as an ETT? Very much so. And we were more fortunate than some other ETT uh, teams in that we had uh, we had a section of 105s there. With, uh, I forget which Army unit it was. I mean, I remember the first names of the guys who were there, but uh, Army Arty guys, and they uh, they were actually very good about providing support. So we had two 105s behind us. Um, air support, again, just much more distant, much more waiting. We never wound up using, well, actually once we did, but, um, but as far as immediate fire support, we had those two 105s, uh, basically. But Really, it was oftentimes just me, one Marine sergeant, maybe the corpsman, 20, 30 Afghans, and we're out on, yeah, out on patrol mm -hmm. doing, or at uh, the border control post. So what were those sort of patrol missions like? Were, was it just kind of local village engagement, local security patrols, kind of what, what sort of stuff? All were of the doing? above, and we had a very, um, and I don't know whether it persisted, but it was a very, um, I'd say the special forces were part of the army. I really liked the RD guys were part of the army. Our U.S. Army, I really liked great people all the way around. Um, there was much more bureaucracy around mission planning and the constraints of the mission than I had been used to mm -hmm. elsewhere. Um, and granted, I was sort of much in a much more sort of independent situation in some ways, but uh, the requirements for planning a mission and having it approved were onerous 
and yes, I'm sure there have been some abuses and cowboy stuff in the past or whatever, but I think there have been maybe an overreaction. So just going to, I think, patrol the area the way we thought it needed to be patrolled in a way that would train the Afghans, keep them useful. Um, and we did have uh, enemy activity on the border, so we did need to, before deployed, there was a loophole that for resupply missions that we didn't need sort of this whole process. So every mission we did the entire time was, you know, quote unquote, resupply mission until they switched out guys in um, Bagram and the new army desk sergeant or whatever, like got smart to him. It's like, why is like, why are you resupplying them? Like, you know, once every 48 hours, can you, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, for, but fortunately that happened sort of around the time we were supposed to leave. Um, so, uh, this is, you know, I think my experience in some ways was, was typical of a lot of people that in this kind of low intensity counterinsurgency warfare that you expect action right away, you expect action all the time. It's we only have one hour till, you know, actually only 40 minutes with commercials for something to happen. So I'm just sitting here, what's going on? Mm -hmm. um, and it can be, it can lull you into complacency very quickly and just as quickly you realize you're in a war zone. Um, and so I'd say over the course of our time there, we had uh, actually the very first, uh, what happened initially was um, in Orgoni, we ate with um, one of the regimental Afghan commanders or brigade commander, whoever it was. I got violently ill. There were all these like special forces guys and SEALs and whatever else, you know, like I was there for like three days just vomiting my guts out both directions. Um, and, you know, so these bearded special forces guys like, you know, laughing at me every time I'd like come outside the hooch and like projectile vomit. Um, it actually wound up probably saving my life because the helicopter that went to the fire base that I was going to go to the day that I was supposed to leave on it. Uh, it landed there, and artillery rocket landed right off the end of the on-ramp, the off-ramp of that uh, CH-46, um, and immediately killed two Army soldiers um, right there on the, and the LZ. And I then I recovered, and I got to uh, I got to the fire base in time for their memorial service. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I think the, the first night I got there. Um, I guess one of the Special Forces soldiers had been wounded in action. He uh, later passed too. Uh, you know, that's, I mean, all of the military is very tight knit, but that community maybe particularly. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it was, we were well aware of where we were. Um, and, uh, but again, it's sort of a lot of these kinds of engagements or artillery rockets, enemy that doesn't really want to uh, engage you directly for good reason. Uh, we also had uh, to get used to the idea that uh, whatever we had heard previously, uh, Pakistan forces could not necessarily be assumed as blue or green or anything like that. And they, uh, we actually had the dynamics of that board changed very quickly. You would have units that were more sympathetic with insurgents and allowed all sorts of insurgent activity than you would have another commander who was uh, maybe more interested in clamping down. You never quite knew 
where you were, but uh, we came very close. Our previous unit had been in direct uh, fire with them, actually. Um, we had some uh, things that came very close to that. Um, so it was a very complex political situation. That's maybe what sort of interested me in my, my next career and as a political scientist. But um, we probably a month before we left, they actually had they tried to overrun our border control point, mm -hmm. and we were ready for them. And that was like, um, like we had been chasing ghosts the whole time, and finally, like they were coming in waves over the border. And uh, I remember our special forces, the special forces guys controlled the AO, so there was the special forces team commander was the senior guy there, and I remember him sort of looking at these things like, "Well, F it, you know, let, let's go." And it's like, "Yeah." Let's so we uh, loaded up on our vehicles, went out there. Um, they made contact with us. Sometimes we were a couple clicks south of the border control post. And um, that was sort of like uh, going back to my Iraq experience, a little bit like, okay, well, I've done this before. <laughs> so, and uh, I had actually the Ford air controller, the tactical air controller, uh, the Air Force guy next to me. and. Um, it was kind of more um, like finally we finally these guys want a direct fight and um, we uh, engaged them for uh, that kind of situation I'm not quite sure how long it is because time is kind of warped in a particular way we actually did get army helicopters there fairly quickly the Apaches showed up and we, we had them there and um, my and it's actually the tactical air controllers comment as well he had much more experience controlling them they I think at that time at least were much more in the mindset and the training of sort of this is a flying tank maneuver warfare mm -hmm. kind of thing and it was actually um, we could see the RPG shots going up at them we were trying to talk them onto the target but it was actually very difficult to get them to single out particular en enemy dismounts, that kind of thing. Um, we had them circling around, whatever they were worried about, artillery hitting them, so there's like, where's the gun target line, this mm -hmm. kind of thing, that kind of thing finally got them to get over the engagement area and not shoot at us. And he finally like lets loose with those rockets. And uh, But that was sort of a moment of release in some sense after sort of almost two deployments worth of chasing an enemy that doesn't want to fight you and I think then they learned why they don't want to fight us and then that was kind of the end of it for a while <laughs> for, um, but then my deployment ended uh, very soon after and uh, again you know you never completely solve every problem certainly in the Afghan army that needs to be solved um, I think ultimately those kinds of issues are political and social, and there's only limited traction for us to influence that. I think we have some levers, we maybe don't use them as effectively as we might, but you have to be satisfied in some way with sort of the incremental progress you made, hand it off to the next group of Marines who wonders like who the last group was and why they were, <laughs> which bunch of clowns trained these guys or yep. whatever, so the cycle continues. I think that's actually a good place to leave off. Um, 
I really appreciate you you talking to us about both sort of your Iraq experience and then and then your experiences in ETT in mm-hmm. Afghanistan. So thank you. Thank you. Hey, before you go, just a quick reminder that if you're not already doing so, you can follow MWI on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It's a great way to stay up to date on what we're doing so you don't miss any of the new articles, podcasts, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again for listening.